to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Hey, hey, what do you say? We're here once again for another edition of the Lions of Liberty podcast. And thanks for coming back, guys, because honestly, if you guys didn't keep coming back, I probably wouldn't keep coming back to produce these shows for you without listeners. I'm just having a little talk with someone every week for my own health. And and that's good. That's healthy. We need to talk out our issues, resolve our differences, advance ideas. That's why I do this. That's why we started our site, lionsofliberty.com. And don't forget to get involved in the conversation. Come over to our social media, facebook.com slash lionsofliberty. Over on the Twitter, at lionsofliberty. You can even find us over on Google+. Plus Because that's the world we live in now. This is how people receive much of their information, not from the traditional news sources like Fox, MSNBC, CNN. News and opinion are becoming completely decentralized thanks to the internet, thanks to social media. And this is a positive thing, my friends. This allows voices to be heard that would likely never sniff the mainstream corporate media. Maybe they're heard by less people, but heard we are. And I've had a lot of names on the show that many libertarians particularly would be familiar with. Names like Walter Block. Episode 9. Ben Swan. Episode 23. Political insider Roger Stone. Episode 11. I've had a lot of these guys on the show discussing some great topics, so go back and check out the archive, lionsofliberty.com slash podcast. But, you know, today I want to bring in a guy that many of you may not have heard of unless you are an active poster over on the Daily Paul or an active reader of our site, lionsofliberty.com. His writing can be found at the Daily Paul as well as at lionsofliberty.com. He is also the author of a book, The Macroeconomics of Individual Action, a Mathematical Extension to Austrian Thought. Daryl Walters, welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Hey, nice to be with you, Mark. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Daryl. How could I be anything but great out here in sunny Los Angeles? I'm sorry, I just have I have to rub it in sometimes, you know. But I, you're living in a pretty warm place yourself, huh? It's not too cool here, and it's still summer in Arkansas as well. So I mean, we're pretty warm here. I have my garden going. I have my tomatoes and peppers and everything going. But uh, so, how is LA? You enjoy it out there? Oh, I, I love it out here. I mean, it's not really the place that most people um, of our ilk, I guess, <laughs> would associate with uh, libertarian or liberty political beliefs and that kind of thing. But you'd be surprised. There's actually a pretty good contingent out here of some, some pretty strong liberty activists. We just have to kind of fight a little harder and maybe uh, craft our arguments a little bit differently because obviously the general political atmosphere out here isn't exactly conducive to uh, you know a lot of the things that the liberty folk believe, if you will. Well. You run into that everywhere. Exactly. I mean, even in graduate school, uh, you know, you're, I have friends that I was just arguing today about, you know, as far as from the liberal philosophy. I even had a person tell me earlier today that, oh, yeah, if the government was gone tomorrow, I would go and rob my neighbor. <laughs> wow. I was immediately clear. I'd be like, well, you'd probably be one of the first people that got shot. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny, because most people, I mean, I don't know, most people kind of, if you ask them, if you go through that leading set of questions, like, well, if the government disappeared, would you just go out, you know, murdering and robbing people? And most people, maybe they're not being truthful, but I, I like to think they are. Most people usually say, well, no, of course not. But I've never come across the guy that would openly admit, well, yeah, of course, I would go next door and rob my neighbor. <laughs> and this fellow is a good friend of mine, so he's experienced with... Uh... You know, with the arguments that you know that I have. So. Right. I mean, he might just be cajoling you a little bit too. Exactly. He was just trying to be the devil's advocate. Is what he was doing. 
the thing about it is, is well over 96% of people, statistically, somewhere between 96 and 98% are just regular folks. You know, it's only about somewhere between 2 and 4% that are sociopathic killers, you know. Right. Most people are not going to come and shoot your mom in the face because they need crack money or something like that. And that's something that people need to realize is that is if the government was gone tomorrow, most of these folks aren't going to come and kill you. You know, they're going to get up, they're probably going to go to work and look for a way to make some money and do their normal stuff. And uh, the, the the thieves and the murderers and all those type of people, you know, I, I think they'll largely be handled the way they were back in the West in the early days. If you come and rustle my cattle... If you come and steal from me and try to do something on my property, kill my, you know, the women, the kids, or whatever, then I'm going to hang you, you know, on a tree <laughs> somewhere on my pasture. And and that's one of the things is there's a lot of, of accountability. Uh, whenever there is no government, it's individuals are held accountable for their actions. Whenever there is a government, there's a way to weasel your way out of accountability. And that's one of the biggest problems that I find is that accountability is not something that is of paramount importance. You know, the police are never going to go testify against one of their brethren. Oh, yeah, he certainly killed that guy, and it was completely wrong, or any of that. That's never going to happen. The politicians are never going to send themselves to jail. And accountability is one of the biggest the biggest problems with having a state. You know, it's completely lacking. The only people that are held accountable are the, are the serfs, or the individuals out there. It's funny you bring up that uh, thing with the police. I was actually in, uh, called for jury duty a few months ago, and uh, the, I never got too far into the specifics of the case because, as, as you can imagine, I didn't last too long on the jury selection panel. But you know, one of the things they they, they give us a, a litany of questions, uh, you know, sort of pertaining to the case, and a few of them involved, you know, whether uh, you trust the testimony of a police officer and where you've had bad experiences with the police officer. So you know, because they asked us to be honest, immediately got rid of you. Well, yeah, I mean, they asked us to be honest, so I I was honest. You know, I wasn't looking necessarily to get off the jury. I mean, hey, if there's a guy, maybe I didn't know the case. I mean, maybe the guy, the defendant, perhaps committed a victimless crime and should be off. So, I mean, I was willing to be on the jury in, in that situation. You know, hopefully maybe I could even help somebody. But um, I was still going to be honest in the proceeding. And, you know, when they asked me if I ever had a bad experience with police officers, I was honest. I was like, yeah, I have. I've had several. And, you know, I've, I've even had um, a police officer lie openly in court, in a, in a court testimony in, in, that I was involved with. So I'm... I, I kind of used that and I said, well, you know, it's not that I think every police officer is necessarily going to be a liar, but it's something I'd have to take into account when, you know, the police are on one yeah, side absolutely. of the crime. And so the police officer is, is basically, he's not the defendant, but he's the guy that is bringing up the charge against this man. This It was some kind of absolutely. vehicular charge. So I would, of course, take factor that in that, you know, he he is kind of biased and I would I would take that bias into account during my testimony. And yeah, like like I said, I didn't last very long on that jury at all. But Daryl, I want I want to take things back a little bit. Let's uh you know we got into some things early here, but I want to kind of bring people to the genesis of your current beliefs. And you know, I'm I'm guessing like most of us, you weren't born the kind of a hardcore libertarian uh from from the beginning. <laughs> Maybe you were. I don't, yeah, I don't know. Absolutely. But um you know yeah, absolutely <laughs> so People, whenever they, uh, they shouldn't feel bad to be the way they are. I mean, I think that nowadays, and I mean, you've experienced this as well, the libertarians will give people that are quote-unquote not awake a very hard time. Like, oh, well, you don't believe everything that I believe, so therefore you're a status piece of crap. Mm-hmm. And 
that's something that, you know, I don't think is very productive and doesn't grow the movement very much. And the reason why I say that is, is that I consider myself a pretty intelligent fellow. You know, I've, I've been around, I've read a lot, I've done a lot, and I gave a lot of thought to a lot of different things. But, you know, prior to, uh, to discovering Ron Paul, you know, to listen to what Ron Paul has to say, or had to say it, I would always, uh, say things like, oh, well, I think history will show that Bush made the right decisions. Oh, we should have probably went to Iraq and defended all these things and did this and that and the other. And so it's, it doesn't take a very stupid person or a person with a very low IQ to be fooled by what they have to say. And once you get to thinking about these things and really consider them for yourself, then you can come to wake up. But, you know, we give people a, a, a very hard time a lot of times, you know, about not being awake and about supporting the state and all these things. And rightfully so, you know, they're supporting the state and things. But we shouldn't denigrate them and make it feel like bad people, you know, like, oh, you're just, just a piece of junk. or You're just a like sheeple. That. Yeah, we should definitely try to defeat the mentality that led them to support the state and all the bad things that the state has done. But, you know, to personally make them feel bad, you know, oh, well, you're just terrible. I mean, that puts us in a position where, like you said, many of us were never, uh, I mean, just a few years back, you know, weren't espousing the ideas that, that we are now. And so, I mean, I, th- I think that's something that a person needs to take into account whenever they go to talk to other people. I mean, don't don't immediately just tell someone, oh, you're just terrible and I can't talk to you. You should talk to them about their ideas, you know, and, and, and there's definitely flaws in their ideas if they still believe in that, oh, well, uh, supporting war in, in some other country or killing half a million children with sanctions in Iraq like the Clinton administration did. I mean, those are things that people need to think about. Like, oh, yeah, I supported that back then, but I think it's bad, and I think that I'll change now. And it's their ideas that were wrong. It's not the people that were wrong. I mean, like I said, we're over, you know, somewhere between 96 and 98% of people are normal folks. And they're not going to come, and they're not going to start crack tomorrow, and they're not going to come and, and kill you or do anything violent against you. I mean, most people are normal folks, and if you can just reach them with reason and logic, they're like, you know what, I think you're right. You know, I think they are killing a lot of people. They probably ought not be killing. Right, and that's it's funny you mentioned that you were kind of, um, I don't know, a Republican Bush apologist for a while there because I was kind of the same way. My dad was conservative Republican, so I was raised in that kind of small government, self-government kind of household. So, but, you know, what my dad always did was defend Republicans. So when he was preaching that stuff, small government and defending Republicans, I, I found myself doing the same thing. I would just defend Republicans because that seemed like the right guys. So not not to use the, the left-right paradigm there, but they seem like the right guys for the job, for keeping things smaller, especially when they're being compared with the Democrats, when it's being presented as, these are your two options. You got to choose one. So I'm like, well, I'm not going to choose these other guys calling for, you know, government health care and all this crazy stuff. So obviously I've got to choose these other guys who are 
you know, at least trying to keep things smaller or whatever. But, you know, it's really when you come to learn what a, a false kind of paradigm that is that you can oh, at absolutely. least start thinking for yourself or what have you. So what was it for you that broke you out of it? I think for me, in a lot of ways, I don't want to use the term awake because I know that's the, the term a lot of libertarians use that we just talked about where it's kind of can be condescending. Like, yeah. you know, when people say, oh, you're you're still asleep. You Wake up, sheep. It's like, well, I mean, that might be true in a sense, but you're not really going to wake someone up, I guess. You're not going to really get someone to listen to you in a rational way and take your ideas seriously when you're sort of berating them off the bat. So what first got you interested in this stuff? Was it, and thinking differently, was it Ron Paul or was there something before that? Well, you know, to be honest, growing up, I've always been, my my dad was really big on this. Is you take care of yourself and if you need to put food on, on the table, then sometimes you just got to shovel a little shit or do something that you possibly might not like doing, you know, in order to survive, you know, but to be self-reliant. And so I've always been raised that way. But like I said, you know, even even having been raised that way in a very self-reliant way, I was still, a, you know, very supportive of the state and all the military actions. And then all the way up until, I'd say, 2008, I started graduate school. And in graduate school... And so I completely missed out on Ron Paul in 2008 because I started graduate school, and that was that. You know, I mean, whenever you start uh, graduate school, then you spend all your time just thinking about the things that you need to think of to finish what you're doing. And uh, so a lot of your time is, is taken up. But the good thing about it was is, you know, I, during graduate school, I met people from Saudi Arabia, Iran, India, China, uh, Nepal, Germany, from all over the world I've met people. And during that time, I feel like, you know, I really get along with these people. These people are good people. And then in 2012, you know, and at the time, like I said, you know, before, I was still supporting George Bush. I was like, oh, yeah, like, you know, George, he was okay, and all this. But then in 2012, whenever Ron Paul came onto the scene for me, and I jumped head first. You know, I, I listened to him talk just a little bit, and I was like, you know, I think this guy's right. You know, I mean, it's basically common sense, most of the things that he has to say. And uh, that's the thing is, is he really put the puzzle pieces for me together. So if I really had to uh, credit anybody, you know, it would be Ron Paul. And, you know, to be honest, that even leads on to uh, kind of a Rand Paul type of thing because, you know, Rand Paul... I've disagreed with them a lot. I mean, it's easy to go back and find places where I've said, you know, I really don't agree with this that you've done. I don't agree with saying. Careful, Daryl. Careful, you're going to get the you're going to get the libertarians angry. Oh, good. Rand Paul's well, I mean, touchy, touchy subject. <laughs> you know, there was a military man, and I'm not. A, I don't much agree with military people, but I'm also one to take good quotes from good people, or good quotes from anyone, even bad people. And uh, but Pat, and, and I won't say whether he was good or bad. Uh, I don't have an opinion on that, but. But Patton once said, if everybody's thinking a lot, then somebody's not thinking. And so, you know, Rand Paul, even though, you know, Ron Paul had a very good opinion about this. Politics, while I think it's useless, I don't think that, say, for instance, if Rand Paul gets elected in 2016, that all of a sudden everything's going to turn around and, oh, hey, now everything's all right, guys, and now we can just go about it. Now liberty is here. You know, that's not going to happen if Rand Paul gets elected in 2016. It's not, oh, well, now we can just quit paying attention. That's not going to happen. But the thing about it is, is the important part about it is the education perspective. 
And Ron Paul was very good about this, you know. Uh, he, I think he would have been disappointed had he won the presidency, to be honest with you. You know, just kind of knowing the, the, the character and the type of person that, that Ron Paul is, I would have think that he would probably be disappointed had he won. But he was there for another purpose. Yeah, I mean, it always seemed like he, even when he was asked the questions about, you know, what would you do in the White House, or he's like, well, I haven't really thought about that. That's, <laughs> I'm not really, I mean, he never really even seemed to care about that. I'll bring the troops home. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you'd see him really light up and get fired up when you ask him about economics or about philosophy or about a specific issue. That's when he really gets into his zone. When you talk to him about the particulars of, you know, being president and that kind of thing, he immediately, like, almost checks out because it's not why he's really there. Absolutely. And most people aren't looking, you know, most good people, you know, like Ron Paul, they're not looking to be in charge of everyone else. They're not looking to Oh, you need to do this, and you need to do that. They're trying to get people to understand that people should stop saying, oh, you need to do this, and you need to do that. If people would just quit worrying about what other people are doing and worrying about what their selves were doing, then this world would be a lot better off. It, it's, this all, it's all this control, like, oh, well, I believe this way, so therefore I'm going to try to make you do the things my way. That's what leads to a lot of the violence and a lot of the bad things that happen. But uh, politics provides a route for education. And I think that that's where Rand Paul has an opportunity, but it's kind of unique. The opportunity that Rand Paul has versus Ron Paul, because Rand Paul is actually trying to, you know, pass legislation and do these different types of things. And because of that, he has to kind of bend with the wind, so to speak. You know, he, and it makes it, kind of a slippery slope for him as far as that goes because, you know, the educational perspective is kind of taken a little bit down because he has to kind of uh, go away from principle in order to do the things that he wants to do and achieve the things that he wants to achieve. So to me, politics is more of an educational experience. You have an opportunity to tell a lot of people, you know, the philosophy of liberty and, and, uh, because he has had to compromise so much on different things, it, it kind of detracts from that education perspective, but he's still a good fellow, and he's still trying to do the right thing. And I really don't have anything against Rand Paul. And uh, I would say the, the primary thing about me that, that people would need to realize is, is that I'm hard on two groups of people, very hard on two groups of people, people I don't like, <laughs> people a lot. <laughs> I, li- I like that. <laughs> if I don't know you, if I meet you in the grocery store, you know, it just see you, it just happenstance, I've never observed you, I don't know who you are, I'm going to be nice to you. Unconditionally, I'm going to be nice to you until you prove to me that you're a bad person. And if you say something bad, I'll be like, you know, I disagree with that. And I think that that's something that, that people should do. If everyone would do that, and if you honestly disagree with someone, Honestly, tell them that you disagree. And uh, just leave it all on the table and, and be honest with folks. And I think that's something that a lot of people, they try to sugarcoat things and, and uh, try to say things that, oh, well, uh, you know, in their mind they really don't agree with. But, well, you know, oh, yeah, you're okay. Oh, that's not too bad, you know. And they agree with these things they really don't agree with just for the sake of being a yes man, just so they can feel good in the moment and get acceptance in the moment from the person that they're agreeing with, when in reality they don't agree. And 
And that's something that I'll subject myself to. You know, is if I disagree with something, I'll disagree. If I agree, then I'll agree. I think that's something that should people people should try out. Sure. And it seems like so many people nowadays are just kind of, I say nowadays, like I've been around forever, like I'm an old timer or something, but, <laughs> but it seems like a lot of people are afraid to either a even have a bold position or that, that stands outside the mainstream or stands outside what they've heard repeated to them in school, in the media, et cetera, et cetera. It seems like there's too many people that kind of have that attitude. And, and then if they do have a bold position, they're not really willing to often engage and debate over it. And often they'll just end up calling you yeah. an, a stupid name before you can even get to the core. They'll just be like, yeah, you know, yeah. if you try to engage on a subject, they might just say, all right, well, go move to Somalia, you libertarian. You, if that's what you want, you know, get, just get, go over to Africa. I mean, and then, I mean, they're just essentially walking off the field of intellectual debate when they do that. So it, it can be very difficult. And this, this, this subject, the fact that you brought this up actually brings up a quote that I pulled out from one of your articles that you've written over at Lions of Liberty. It's a really good quote that I like. So I'm just going to read it for you since I, since I pulled it out here. Um, it says, spread ideas, learn to communicate. This is actually from a, a, an article entitled Rethinking the State Concept, and I'll post to this on the podcast. But it says, spread ideas, learn to communicate effectively, speak in a regular volume so that those lingering in the immediate vicinity can hear what you're saying. Never be ashamed to admit you're a minarchist or anarchist or whatever else. Be proud and stand on logic. And rather than telling people what you want them to know, try to instead ask them questions that will get them to think about the message you're trying to convey. I, I really like that passage of hers. That's why I pulled it out. But feel free to expand or, or reinforce what I just read there. Oh, the power of questions. You know, and, and that's something that, that is lost a lot of times. I mean, how many times have you been in a classroom? I mean, well, this is something that we can take the state for. Everyone has been in a classroom, okay? in your state-sponsored school. But how many of those people that were in that classroom were willing to ask questions? What percentage? You know, maybe a class of 20 or 30 people might have like one or two people, maybe three, that, that ask questions regularly. Right. I mean, this is something I've experienced in, uh, in uh, college as well, is that only a very small fraction of people are willing to ask questions. Yeah, I mean, if I, if I was running a classroom, I would want to make it a requirement to ask questions. I'd be like, all right, I just discussed this subject. Each of you has five minutes to come up with a question. You know, we need to be asking <laughs> questions, even if it's just asking questions about things we think we already agree with. The questions are what can help us arrive at, you know, the, the actual rational, logical answers. Yeah, exactly. And, and most of the time, people are capable of thinking for themselves. And, you know, we have this concept. I wrote that, that uh, essay, uh, Other People. Uh, on the Lines of Liberty uh, website. Yeah, that's another great one, which, which I'll link to as well. <laughs> we have we have this concept that everyone beyond our scope of knowledge, anyone that we don't know, is just completely stupid. Oh, well, you know, people are stupid, so, you know, I mean, people, they'll, folks will start sentences out with that. Well, people are stupid, so, you know, they transition into whatever they're going to say after that. But in reality... Most of these people are pretty normal folks. You know, I tried to point out, uh, like, say, for instance, the other day, I was talking to one of my friends, and he's a Republican, hardcore status. He's one of the militaries, the borders, and all these different types of things. And, you know, I, I try to conversate with all these folks, you know, and try to get them to come around. But, you know, I'll point out, I'll be like, well, how about that guy walking down the street right there? Do you think he's crazy? I mean, is that guy going to kill your mom tomorrow? Or how about this lady over here that's at the store? What about that cashier at the grocery mart? You know, I mean, are they gonna are they gonna kill your family or do something crazy? And 
it's it's not. You know, I mean, these people aren't stupid. I mean, they're not stupid. They're not crazy. They're not killers. And all these generalizations that people make about those other people that they don't know, by the way, then they're mostly all false. And have given the opportunity, if put in the right way, then they'll understand what you have to say and say, oh, yeah, you know, you got a point. Uh, I think this is all a bunch of crap. And a lot of times, it doesn't take you having to point it out. And, and like you're bringing up, is you can just ask them questions. You know, because most people have a pretty good foundation. If you just ask them, well, do you think this is right? Well, for instance, do you think stealing is right? Okay, well, stealing's not right? Well, how about I send uh, Joe Blow over here to steal from you? Is that okay? Oh, well, no, if you can't steal from me, Joe Blow can't steal from me. Well, what if I send someone from the government to steal from you? Is that okay? You know, they're like, oh, well, wait a minute now, wait a minute. And they go into this, it's almost like the records start skipping. <laughs> or the CD starts skipping and just repeats the same thing over and over. They don't have anything to say. Right. You know, all of a sudden they, they have to take this logical leap. Well, you know, when I introduce a middleman, stealing is still stealing and killing is still killing. But how do I rationalize it whenever there's a state involved? When the state's the middleman, now it's suddenly okay. And that's something that a lot of people have trouble with. Well, sure, it's that, it's that myth of the state as sort of a godly entity, as, as something that's just, uh, you know, has different powers or something like that than an individual, whereas, you know, we might blindly say, hey, if this guy comes into my house and breaks in and steals my money, well, he's a robber, he's a criminal, period. Very straightforward. If the government comes to collect taxes with guns and money that we don't agree we should pay, well... Well, then, hey, you should pay your taxes, you crazy libertarian. I mean, they suddenly spin it around the, the total opposite way. But I think we also run into problems with a lot of this stuff, and, and it's because of the way people view government. You know, a lot of people view government as just the vehicle by which they get things that they want or by, by which, you know, things should occur. I mean, whatever those things may be. You know, Bastiat said that the state is the great fiction by which everyone endeavors to live at everyone else's expense. And, uh, you know, I think that, that that's what it is. And, but I think it goes further, you know, to Ghani's quote. There's an eye for an eye, leaves everyone blind. Because the government essentially is a tool for anyone that has felt like they've been wrong through the government, like, say, uh, slavery or, or any other type of issue where someone's been wronged by, by some type of state policy. Then the first tool that they look to use to screw the people that screwed them or the state. You know, they go, they, they immediately go to the government and we're like, well, now I'm going to use the state to get you back. But the problem with it is, is it goes back to Gandhi, is that the state is such a thing to where if you use it to screw everyone else, and then those people that, that got screwed by you use it to screw you back, then in the end, everyone's just going to get screwed. So it, 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 it's not a very good tool to use just on account of uh, eventually it will get used against you too. Well, sure. I mean, if you advocate a system that is based on initiating violence against your fellow man and you kind of rationalize that because, well, you know, if this organization doesn't do that, you know, X, Y, and Z negative consequences are going to happen. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. I mean, we got to look at things issue by issue. But, I mean, what they're missing is that 
option A is going to happen, and that option A is that if you advocate for that system, eventually that system is going to, you know, aggress against you. It's going to violate your rights as well. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of people, we go back to this taxes issue, taxation as theft is like a, a big meme, and it certainly is because you can't opt out of it, and I have written on this before, but at the same time... It, we have to kind of look into, I don't know, I don't want to do this smearing people thing that we talked about in the beginning, call people status, but we'll call them status for the purposes of this podcast. You know, <laughs> if a statist or a person who really kind of worships the state in that manner, if they want the taxes, you know, I know people that say, I wish my taxes were higher. It's like, oh, goodness. well, go ahead and send them some extra then. They won't complain. Send them extra. They won't right. send it back. <laughs> but but they're never going to see that system as theft. You know, they're just not going to see it that way because it's it. They're not getting it stolen from them. They see it as they're donating it or, or what have you. But yeah, like I said, hey, send more. I mean, they'll take it. They will certainly take your money. But I think the biggest problem is that we need to really promote a system where people can design their own systems, you know, whatever those systems may be, as long as they don't violate the rights of others or force others into them. For example, I'm against communism. I don't think it's a smart way to live your life. I don't think it's a smart system. I think it's uh, destined to fail for all the economic reasons that we probably agree on. At the same time, if a group of 100 people want to have a little city and, you know, start a commune, I mean, I'm not going to say that they don't have the right to do that, so long as they're not you know, forcing the people in that area to be in it, forcing others to join it, and that kind of thing, you know? So, uh, how do you see that? You know, I I think that, I definitely think that people are welcome to to form all those things, you know, on their own, and, and, uh, for instance, you know, get together with your friends or your community or whatever, and and have, uh, you know, uh, 100% consensus, or, or, uh, you know, unanimous consent, or whatever, or, or get together with majority consent, or whatever. But the problem with it is, I think that that all of those systems have a uh, an effect on ownership. Like, for instance, say that I join a community that says, okay, we're only going to enforce, you know, the natural laws, and we're going to write these down on paper. And, it's, and, of course, as soon as you write them down on paper, you have to define them, you know, and, and that automatically makes it not a natural law. But say, for instance, you know, we're not going to murder, we're not going to kill, well, I wouldn't say it automatically yeah. does. If if it's if it's keeping itself to, to natural law, like like you just said, if, if it keeps itself to murder, theft, that kind of yeah, thing. yeah. So so you define it. So you define these different things, and then now the adults have agreed that okay, this is how we're going to live, and so they form a community. But now, what happens whenever, say, for instance, one of the inhabitants of the community say, "Well, you know, I would like to sell my uh, my property to." My cousin, uh, Ted from, you know, several states over, or, or he doesn't even live in a state, you know, whatever. You know, my cousin Ted wants to buy my property. And so now that whenever cousin Ted comes in, is he forced to, uh, to sign this agreement to live in the community? And if, if not, then does the fellow that was going to sell the property really own it? Can he sell it to the people he wants to sell it to? And, and if that's not the case, well, what about passing it down to his children? Say, well, you know, I'd like to pass this down to my children, but my children don't agree with the rules of the community we set up previously. Is, is that guy allowed to, to pass that property down to his children? Or are those people need to be forced out? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it all depends, A, on you know the specific agreements attached to the property, but it also depends on, on the distinction that we need to make here. And like you just mentioned, if it's man-made rules, we're not talking about natural law. But if, if let's, I mean, for, personally, I would never want to live in a community that did anything above natural law because that's, you know, I don't want to live in a community where I'm not allowed to, you know, do whatever I want on my own property. So I think a lot of people would actually want to live in that community, especially if we're talking about a society where people do have an understanding of natural rights and natural law, which is the kind of thing we're pushing towards. But, um, you know, I think essentially we have to distinguish between natural law and man-made law. So if the rules of the community are just no theft, no murder, you know, just nat- strictly natural law, well, then I think anybody who moves in that property or, or whatever is going to be bound by that, not because it's written down, but because natural law should apply to everyone, every single individual. So, yeah, Well, I think it does apply to You know, it, it does apply, in, you know, in the absence of the state, so even in the complete absence. You know, that's the only thing there is. I mean, and, and the reason why it's natural is because it doesn't have to be written down. It's like people know it's wrong to kill. They know it's wrong to steal. You know, they know these different things are wrong. You know, I mean, it goes against their nature. And I told a friend earlier today, whenever I was talking to him about uh, about natural law and different types of things, he was like, well, I would be the, I would be the guy that, Hey, if the government ends tomorrow, I'll go next door and steal from my neighbor and all that. Now I told him, yeah, you'd be the first one to get shot, too. And that's the thing is, is people will uphold natural law. You know, they do it automatically. And, and with, like, say, for instance, Detroit. I was talking to my status friend, you know, that's a Republican the other day. And, uh, and I was asking him, I was like, well, you know, I was like, what about Detroit? And he was telling me about Detroit and this and that. And that. I was like, well, you know, crime's been down a little bit here lately in Detroit. He's like, yeah, because people don't put up with that shit. <laughs> and I said, exactly. You come around stealing, you come around doing all these different types of things, people don't put up with it. And the problem with trying to establish a long-term community based on things that you've written down on paper is, is that dead people have no rights. Once you're gone, you're gone. And if you're going to make it static, if you're going to make whatever you wrote down permanent, then you're enslaving your children. You know, you're saying, well, we knew best, we made the best system that was possible, and now you're subject to its rule, and you have no choice. But, on the other hand, if you make it to where it's changeable, to where these kids, well, we can go in and vote, they can change it, then you say, well, is it by majority, is it by unanimous consent? And unanimous consent's a very hard thing to come by. So, you're going to look at, at if, it, if it's changeable, then, yeah, they're not slaves now, but they're sla- enslaving each other. Anyone that disagrees is basically a slave to the majority. And so, I mean, you run into those problems. Yeah, I mean, if people set up a system where people literally can't leave and are are literally enslaved in that sense, then sure, that is a system that should be rejected and that definitely violates rights. But, you know, if, in terms of private property, I mean, people even now today under our SATA system have all sorts of kind of agreements. Like just this weekend, I was in St. Louis and my sister said something about the lawn, how they have to keep the lawn down. And yeah, I wouldn't really want to live in a community where I had to do X thing with my lawn. But yeah. when sh- when they bought that house, it was a kind of an already existing easement within that community and they have a decision people do that yeah and they can say i either you can buy this house and knowing that or you can not buy that house and you know and avoid the agreement it's not like they're forced to live on the property and forced to mow their lawn when they were just kind of minding their own business elsewhere it was a reasonable term that they felt was fine you know in terms of moving into that community well, that's the thing is they enter to it uh, voluntarily. Exactly. And that's what I think we should advocate for, our systems that can be voluntarily entered into that you cannot force others to be into. Yeah. Well, 
but I think I, as well, there needs to be a vol- like the ability to volunteer distance. You'd be like, well, you know, now you guys have gone too far. Like now you've passed some laws or whatever that I don't agree with, and I'm not going to abide by them. And I'm like, you know, and so that, should that be person forced to move? You know, I mean, if say that that a, that a community establishes permanent rules, you know, and I'm not really a, a big you know advocate. I was talking to, to a guy about this the other day. You know about HOAs and stuff. Like about your lawn and, and things, you know. Well, you got to keep your lawn a certain height, or, or we're going to get on to you. Maybe we might force you to move. Do you really own your property? And at that, you know, even a community like that, anytime you make those kind of rules, it just creates distinctions. You know, say the guy that is really busy, or the guy that's lawnmower broke down, or whatever, that can't afford a new lawnmower. For instance. You know, this is the honest truth is my lawnmower's broke down and my lawn looks bad right now because I can't mow it. You know, should that guy be kicked out of the community? You know, I think that, that, that what you run into are these minimum sentences, oh, well, you do drugs and now you got to be in prison for a certain amount of time. These type of things are these prescribed punishments that people put in place. You know, they, they create distinctions. And, I mean, you know, and anytime you allow an exception, then it pisses somebody else off, and you end up with these problems. And uh, and I just don't. I'm not a big fan of making people do things. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think anything that's a man-made rule can be agreed to, but it can't be forced upon other people. And you know, there there has to be terms in the contract of you know of these situations. You know, what happens if if you don't mow your lawn on day X because your because your lawnmower broke down or whatever? I mean, I don't think that the the way people would do that is jump to well, we're gonna kill you. I mean, and if they did, well, that they're violating your rights. I mean, there's there obviously has to be some sort of system in place which you know actually a grievance process and that sort of thing. I mean, and that's the thing is like is all these complications well. There's this exception and that exception. Well, do we need to write down the exceptions? And, and I mean, there's all these complications. And, uh, you know, having lived out in a country where really nobody's really just coming over and twisting your arm and mow your lawn and stuff, you know, and people just do what they want. And maybe they got a broke down car in front of their house or something. You know, we're out in the middle of the country. You know, I mean, you know, to me, if I'm living in a place, I'm like, oh, well, these people are driving the property price down, you know. Well, once they drive it down low enough, I'm going to buy it the hell out of it, and I'm going to make a lot of money out of it once I mow it and turn it around. So, I mean, there's there's economic incentive. Like, even if your neighbor is driving down property prices, if you're not planning on selling your house, it's really not that big a deal because it might get down to a point where you can cheaply afford to buy some properties adjacent to you and sell them at a profit or rent them out or something. So, I mean, there's economic motives, you know, that, that go beyond that, but... You know, I'm just not a fan of making people do things. Oh, yeah, neither am I. I mean, I think we, in order to kind of, I don't know, sell liberty to people, I hate that term sell because it's just like, I'm not trying to sell anything. I just want to change the way people think about things. But, you know, in order to sell liberty to people, I think when we say things like, no government, no this and no that, people suddenly think, oh, we can't even have cities where we congregate and we can't even have our own communities. And I guess my point is like, well, you can have these things. I mean, people are still, I mean, I know Daryl Walters prefers to live in the country, so no one's, I mean, I think you'll still do that, whereas a lot of other people prefer to congregate in cities, in communities, etc. Yeah, exactly. I agree with you. And that's definitely more conducive to getting people on board. But my opinion is, is that people can agree they're riding on this thing is too damn big. You know, they're spending too much of our money. They're doing too much, you know, and they're room to shrink. And so as long as we can just agree that we need to make it smaller, you know, well, let's start doing that, you know, make it smaller. But 
the thing that I think is most important that I like to that I like to say, you know, before we get done, absolutely, is that the world cannot be conquered with violence, not without complete extermination of the people. Yeah, I mean, we we can nuke the whole planet and end violence, but <laughs> yeah, you're probably not going to be able to to uh, conquer people like Afghanistan, Vietnam, Iraq, and all this. And it's not because you don't have. Oh well, we're much more efficient at killing them than they are killing us. You know that's been shown. But unless you change those people's minds to believe in the things that you believe, they're not going to mind you. You know they're not going to accept your authority. I mean, authority is it's an illusion. If you go to work at a place, say for instance that you're 25 years old and you just got out of college, and you go to work at a factory where there's these people have been working at this factory for 30 years, and you go in and try to start telling these people immediately how to do their jobs. Those people have been doing them jobs for 30 years. Do you think they're going to respect your authority? Nah, not at all. You know, authority is something that, that should be earned. And that's the problem with the, with the state is, is it's authority is given as something that should be assumed. It, it was never earned. And that's a big problem, you know, because... They abuse that authority to go and kill other people and do all these different things that are bad. But all those things, they're spreading democracy, quote-unquote, and all these things. It's futile. They'll never succeed in doing those things unless they can change the minds of the people they're trying to conquer. And in order to do that, you're not going to do it by, hey, well, if you don't agree with me, I'm going to kill your mom. I'm going to kill your son. You know, We're going to bomb your wedding party. It don't matter. You may get a little bit of adherence due to fear, but that's not going to be anything to last long term. You know, I mean, the people that came closest to conquering the world are the people that had good ideas, you know, or the people that had ideas that were, they caught on were popular. I wouldn't even say necessarily good ideas, because you have people like Marx, you know, came pretty close to conquering the world. People like Jesus, people like Muhammad, you know, Buddha, these type of people that have the ideas, and yeah, they... All these people were never presidents, they were never kings, they were never emperors or anything like that. They espoused ideas that were powerful. And that's the only way to ever take over the world. I mean, you're not going to be a person that aspires to power and, oh, oh, I'm going to be president and change the world. You know, well, history shows that, yeah, you're probably not going to change the world. But the person that is going to change the world is going to be the person that puts the ideas out there. And a lot of these things, as far as liberty goes, you know, there's plenty of, of uh, giant shoulders to stand on in Liberty. I mean, there's Los Angeles Spooner, there's Ron Paul, you know, there's Ludwig uh, von Mises, Murray Rothbard. Oh, there's all these people. And one thing I've found is, even with all the stuff that I've written, is that you're probably not going to say anything new. You can try to say it a different way that will get people's attention, but for the most part, everything's already been said. And uh, this spot's been going on a long time, the fight for liberty, and it will continue to go on. There'll always be people around, the remnant will always be people around to take up the spot. And, uh, you know, killing people and doing all these different things is never going to solve any of the problems. It's going to be the ideas that win. And uh, eventually, the you know, the liberty will win. And it's unavoidable, in my opinion. 
Absolutely, man. It comes down to changing the hearts and minds, changing the way people think about their interactions with their fellow man and all of that good stuff. And that's why we do what we do. That's why I started Lions of Liberty with some friends of mine. That's why I started this podcast. That's why you do your writing over at Daily Paul. That's why I invited you to write over at Lions of Liberty, because I think you're someone that even if we don't agree on every little, you know, minutia, you really put a lot of thought into your writing. You put a lot of thought into your conversations and you, you really try to push forward principled ideas and that's that's the only way we're going to do this it's the only way we're ever going to convince people is if we can craft our arguments and you know bring them reason and bring them logic we're not going to get it through shouting at them that they're sheeple that they're status and all that stuff yeah exactly it truly is a powerful thing before i let you go i definitely want to give you a second to just plug your book i know you wrote a book uh, on austrian economics so why don't you just kind of give a quick plug to your book and let people know where they can find it well you can find the book on amazon the macroeconomics of individual action, and basically what I did was develop a model to describe individual action. You know, when a person will act when versus when they will not act, and I extrapolated that, and you know, with mathematics, and developed it to show, for instance, where the market price is based on, you know, the average uh, utility that a good provides to consumers versus what it costs to produce, and further, I showed that any overhead that, that is added, for instance, the government decides to tax a, a certain sector of the economy. Well, any additional cost is added to the producer. If the producer wants to maintain the highest profit available, they have to add that price and pass it on to the consumers. Otherwise, they'll be losing money. And so the basic thing is if producers want to maximize profit, they're going to have to pass these costs on. And... Anytime the government gets involved in it, they're only going to add overhead. That's what the government's good at, is adding overhead, and, and it's very difficult for them to do anything else. The only thing the government produces is stamps. <laughs> and beyond stamps... I got some really <laughs> cool Spider-Man stamps that I, that I like, so I will give them props on the stamps. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so they're always going to just tack on overhead. It's inevitable. If I had to say one thing about my message, what I wanted to say to people is, is that I think most people out here are good people. Well, over 96% of people are not sociopaths. And that we can achieve the level of safety and security and all those things that people like with a lot less overhead, with a lot less cost than what we do it now. Because right now, these people are taking way too much money. They're spending it to line the pockets of their cronies. They're spending it to send your kids overseas, you know, to kill some brown people in some distant land that you've never met. They're doing all these things that you don't agree with, but people still pay it. It can be done a lot more efficient. I would push people to read books like uh, Frederick Bastiat, The Law, uh, Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt, The Constitution of No Authority by Alexander Spooner. And those are the books. Before they go and read my book, I, I, would, I would ask them to read those three first because you know, really, my book is is a much more technical type of book, mathematically oriented, you know, towards economists rather than the general public. So there's a lot better things to read to really understand the philosophy of liberty. And, uh, and the most important thing a person can do is to spread the ideas because that's all we have, you know, are the ideas that make the world a better place. And uh, killing people and spending money to the government to, for them to send to other places to kill people 
you know, it's never going to be a positive thing. It's never going to bring us closer to uh, closer to freedom. And having a comfortable life here at home is no excuse to justify that money being spent. Oh, well, you know, I think that it's okay that my money's spent to kill the Iraqi people as long as my life here at home is good. You know, it's never, it's never okay. And uh, murder is murder. It doesn't happen whether it's next door, you know, in, in the house next door, or it's all the way across the world. It's still murder. And uh, whenever these kids die, whenever these people die, you know, they're still dying. And it doesn't matter how comfortable your life is here at home or or, or none of that. The most important thing is, is that try not to subsidize death and destruction. And uh, people a lot of times will go and blame the military or the police and, and these guys. And, and once they realize it, I agree. Once these guys realize, they're heavily brainwashed, you know, and basically trained and different things to believe that what they're doing is the right thing. And most of the people that go into the military think, oh, well, I'm going to defend my country. But it's only later that they realize that, man, this was a racket. You know, like Smedley Butler, another book, uh, you know, War is a Racket. Major General Smelly Butler, people should go read that. Also, you know, if you participate in any level, you may blame the troops for killing these people and doing these different types of things, but you're paying for it. So there's also that level of responsibility. But people always want to think that, that whatever it is that they're doing is okay, and it's what these other people are doing is what's bad. And uh, it's all bad. If you're contributing, it's all bad. And people should quit that. You know, if you have it in your ability to not pay, you know, taxes or whatever, if you have it in your ability to not re-up, you know, your enlistment into the military, you should do that. If you have the ability to not join the military in the first place, you should do that. If you're in the police force, which I grew up around a lot of police, you know, and a lot of, you know, my friend's dad was the sheriff of our county. I've had several friends grow up to be policemen. And these people are good people, you know. They're always been good people, you know, that I've known. And uh, I would say that most of the policemen out there I've, that I've interacted with have been really good people. And I would never encourage anyone to go out and commit violence against them randomly, like some people have in the past. I think that's a big problem in the libertarian movement. A lot of people, maybe they don't directly advocate killing cops randomly, but uh, there's people out there that they cheer it on or they, they think it's fine or they, you know, they think it's a totally good thing because, hey, a cop is dead. But, you know, that that sort of attitude, it, it blames the enforcers. It doesn't, uh, you know, address the greater problem of why, you know, it's not like this cop is just out there as a vigilante. He's supported by a large portion of the population who thinks he should be out there doing the things he's doing, arresting people for drugs. I mean, ultimately, those people do support that in, in some way, shape and form. And that's the kind of thing that we got to change. That's why we got to focus on ideas like you've said here today. Daryl, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really do appreciate it. We, we'll have to do it again because we could probably go on for, for hours and hours and hours talking about this stuff. Yeah, you know? exactly. I could, I could continue rambling. So, so we'll, yeah, maybe we'll do it again. Oh, absolutely. So we'll do it some other time for sure. And until then, be sure to keep up and, uh, you know, check out Daryl's writing. He's D. Walters over at Daily Paul, and uh, he's got his full name over at Lions of Liberty. So look forward to more of your writing. And, uh, you know, again, thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Again, Daryl Walters. Hi, well, thanks, Mark. I really appreciate it. Take care. We'll be back after a little break. Do you want your kids to meet the champion of the Constitution? What if there was an illustrated book that introduced libertarianism to you through the story of Ron Paul's amazing life? What if this biography breaks down complex concepts like Austrian economic theory, 
the dangers of the Federal Reserve, blowback, and non-interventionist foreign policy. What if I told you this book is real and available? What if I told you that school libraries accept donations? What if you donate a copy to your local school library and give hundreds of youth the opportunity to meet Ron Paul? What if you don't? Who will? The book is Meet Ron Paul, and you can get your copy today at lionsofliberty.com slash Paul. As Ron Paul has said, there can be no revolution without a revolution in education. Meet Ron Paul and keep the liberty movement moving. Hey guys, Mark Claire here, lionsofliberty.com, where we strive to advance the ideas of liberty daily. We bring you the Morning Roar! That's right, every Monday to Friday we'll have a brand new edition of the Morning Roar where we provide a roundup of some news stories that you may not find in the mainstream media or even in your typical social media news feed. We find stories that relate to the ideas of liberty and provide you with our liberty perspective on them. We wrap it all up every Friday with Felony Friday where our own John Odermatt goes out and takes a look at some sort of felony. There's felonies committed every day, you know, whether it's a felony committed by the police, a politician, or even an average citizen. You can find all of this and so much more over at LionsOfLiberty.com, advancing the ideas of liberty daily. Chris Rossini's new book, Set Money Free. Set money free. What every American needs to know about the Federal Reserve. Set money free. With a special forward by Ron Paul. Set money free. It has easy to understand questions and answers. Set free. Buy Set Money Free on Amazon.com. Chris Rossini's Set Money Free. Set money free. Set money free. This is Glenn Jacobs, and you're listening to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. All right, guys, and I hope you enjoyed my conversation there with Daryl Walters. It's great to finally speak to him. He's been contributing to the site for a while. He's a guy I've had a lot of back-and-forth conversations with at The Daily Paul, one of my favorite websites. i got to take a minute to promote The Daily Paul. You know, it's a really great forum designed by Michael Nystrom. It's been around since, I think, 2006, 2007, whenever the first Ron Paul campaign has gotten going. And, yeah, it's had its ups and downs. Sometimes it felt a little more neocon But, you know, that's the thing. It's an open forum. It's a place where people can post. I think he's gotten to a really good point with a site where, you know, there's really quality content up there. We're able to get some really good discussions going, and he has registration open occasionally. So if you get a chance, if you don't go to the Daily Paul, please do go check it out. There's just tons of great news. If nothing, I mean, it's my number one news source. I go to the Daily Paul, and that's where I find like most of my articles, that except for like you know some stuff that I find in my news feed. So that's my shout out to Daily Paul, to Daily Paul Radio, where you can also find this show every Saturday at 6 p.m. Eastern. You can also hear us at LRN.FM, the Liberty Radio Network. We talked to Ian Freeman last week, who runs that. Lots of places you can find the Lions of Liberty podcast. Of course, the place you always know you can find it every single Thursday is posted over at LionsofLiberty.com, also on iTunes. So many ways you can listen. Stitcher Radio. I can't even name all the ways you can listen to the Lions of Liberty podcast. But all I care about is that you keep listening, you keep coming back, you keep thinking about these ideas, and you keep having conversations, asking questions to people, that kind of thing, to get ideas flowing. Even if you don't agree with a word that Daryl and I said here today, well, you sat through this for a reason. So if you got your wheels turning, maybe ask some of those questions. 
Email us. Email me, Mark, M-A-R-C, at lionsofliberty.com. Email me a question. I'm more than happy to engage. I encourage engagement with the audience. We're not here to try to dictate how things should be to you. We're here to have a conversation about it and keep that conversation going. And I'm going to keep doing it each and every week here at the Lions of Liberty podcast. And until next week, don't forget to live long and live free. (laughs) 